All right, we, uh, we're coming now to the end of a series that we've been preaching through the first letter of John. As has been said before, this is a somewhat difficult text to follow because John is the type of writer who, who likes to hold on the one hand some really big theological, philosophical, cosmological ideas, and on the other hand, just sort of straightforward pastoral directives. And he doesn't always show his working how he gets to one uh, from the other. Uh, so, uh, but despite it being a difficult text, I hope that the very choice that we made to engage with this text tells you something about the value with which we hold the Bible. We're not prepared to push things to the side just because they are difficult to understand or to accept. But some of you, uh, nevertheless, will be relieved to hear that starting next week, we're moving into the Gospel of Luke, which has a few more action sequences that are just a little bit more uh, easier to follow. But with no uh, further ado, let's read the text together of the last section of John's letter, starting from uh, verse 13 in chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sin sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The most part of this talk will be about idolatry, which seems... Uh, perhaps a strange place to end the series on John, but it's where John ends his letter, so I'm just going to follow his lead. He kind of has this strange parting shot, it seems, about idols, a bit like sort of shouting down the stairs to somebody who's just walking out the door not to forget their umbrella. It's like, we believe in the one true God and have life in him. Oh, and don't forget about idols. <laughs> Keep yourself from idols. But before I get there, uh, I'm just going to walk through some of the text and just make some observations. So at the beginning of our series on 1 John, Toby, Toby helpfully observed that this isn't a letter written to tell people off, but rather to encourage his hearers. It's not there to say, stop what you're doing, but rather it says, you are on the right path. Don't let anyone mislead you and lead you astray. It's there to encourage followers of Jesus to stay the course. 
And verse 13 makes this clear when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John here isn't concerned over whether or not his hearers have eternal life. He's concerned whether or not they know it. He says, I write these things to you who believe in Jesus. Why? So that you may have eternal life? No, that's not what he says. It's so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, for John, it's not enough just to receive the gift. You need to know you've received the gift. Because only then can you rejoice it and, in it and live in it and see the world around you in the light of it. So I wonder which one of you here today believes and hopes in Jesus Christ and yet does not know that your life is hidden in his, that death cannot harm you. The joy of the gospel lives not only in the fact that Jesus gives eternal life, but also in the fact that eternal life begins now and not in some unknown and distant future. And then John goes on to say that we can be bold, therefore, in making requests of God because we're born of God and therefore we share the inheritance of God's children. But we need to be clear about how this whole asking thing of, things of God actually works. What it doesn't mean is that we suddenly have carte blanche and we can ask God for whatever we, we want and then just like wait for the DPD notifications to wait, like ping on our phone, like your, your delivery is being prepared. I've seen uh, people just, you know, pray for whatever is in their uh, hearts, hearts to desire, and then just tag the words in Jesus' name on the end of it and expect that to happen. But God is not a vending machine. John adds a particular clause, qualification clause. He says, if we ask for anything according to God's will. So that then poses a problem because it seems as though God is one of those gift givers, like the person who uh, gives you a gift that's actually for them. You know, like um, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer buys Marge, his wife, a brand new bowling ball that he's been lusting after, and he lovingly has it engraved with his own name as well. So, uh, is God's gift like that? Are we supposed to ask for what we want or for what God wants? The answer to this binary choice is, like so many things in the Bible, yes. This is one of those choices in the Bible where the answer is both option A and option B. The problem isn't in the asking, it's in the wanting. And John is encouraging us to live so fully in the eternal life that he has already gifted us, that is hidden in Jesus Christ, that our hearts begin to change and we begin to want what God wants. Our wills become so infused with God's will that when we ask for something, we're asking it according to his own will. How do we know when that has happened? Well, I guess the only 
way we can find out is to ask and find out. And now, to a bit of a fudge. Just because we don't brush away parts of scripture that are difficult to understand doesn't mean I understand them just because I've spent time with them. I just gotta keep it real with you. Honestly, John's chat about what is and isn't a sin that leads to death is a mystery to me. And I can say after a great deal of research, it's a mystery to everybody. I conclude with great confidence about this passage that nobody really knows what's going on here. <laughs> there are sometimes passages of Scripture that elude understanding. That isn't to say that they can never be understood. It's just that to the best of my knowledge and the best of my research, we don't yet understand it. So, moving on. <laughs> John's final words in the letter seem like a really strange, almost misplaced fragment, like a, like a bit that he's squeezed onto the tiny little bit of the postcard that's left. Like, oh yeah, don't forget. It might even seem like a new subject, but I think it's actually deeply connected with the whole letter and with what John has been at pains to communicate throughout. First of all, he describes the whole world as being under the influence and power of the evil one. As far as John understands it, there is an active spiritual saboteur, somebody who is working to undermine God. But we're also told that we are protected as children of God from any direct action against us. However, John is still concerned about the influence of the evil one. The evil one can't directly touch God's children, and yet we can't be complacent because the influence of the evil one can be effective through what John and others in the Bible call idols. So we need to maybe look at what idols are and what the problem is that John is warning us against. So in the ancient world, idols were physical objects which represented spiritual beings. And uh, that, those spiritual beings would be seen as actually, in some, in some sense, inhabiting both that thing and the space in which that thing occupied. There's a story in Exodus when Moses sort of disappears up the mountain to talk to God. And when he comes down, he discovers his brother and, uh, and all the people that have been left have, have um, gone a little nuts and they've melted a load of gold into the shape of a golden calf and started worshipping it. Now, it wasn't that they thought a bunch of metal formed into a particular shape was going to do anything for them. What they were looking for was the presence of a god. They were bereft. They felt abandoned. And they wanted a near and present god to come and help them out. And it was a mistake because they were supposed to already have faith and trust in a particular God, the one who had rescued them out of Egypt. And they transferred that trust and that hope from God into other things. And that's what God takes issue with when it comes to idols. It's not uh, that he, like, he dislikes pretty gold things. It's that they had given up on God 
and instead put their hopes into something that was not God. And so when we properly understand what an idol is, we need to think beyond physical objects and start identifying what it is we have around us in our lives that we've allowed to take the place of God. These things are usurpers of the throne. Our lives are thrones where God ought to be seated and not permit anything to take that place. When Eugene Peterson translates the word idols, he calls them clever facsimiles, which I think is a brilliant translation. Uh, A facsimile is a copy of an original. He's saying that idols are imitations of who and what God should be to us, and that we need to guard ourselves against things that can never be as good as the real thing. One of the major techniques of the evil one uh, is imitation of God. In Revelation, for example, Satan presents as a threefold being who tries to look and behave in a way that is designed to convince people that actually he is the God that we have been called to worship. It's a fake of the Holy Trinity. And it's a clever tactic. And this is why John has been at such pains to indicate how we tell the real thing from the fake thing. We tell it by the fruit. And when John issues this passing shot, he uses a particular word that I want to illuminate. And most English translations say, keep yourselves from idols. That's an okay translation, but not not a great one. If you keep yourself from something, it sounds a little bit like a warning to to stay away from it, to, 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 to stay clear of it, like keeping your hands away from dangerous machinery or keeping them inside the windows. It's a good warning, but it doesn't really cover the word that John uses here. For the Greek nerds out there, he uses the word philasso, the verb philasso, which means keep, but it more properly means guard. Guard yourself against idols. Take careful, protective measures to prevent yourself from coming under attack from these idols. The word keep is fine if when you say keep, you're thinking of the part of a castle that was the most heavily fortified part where if you were under attack or under siege, that would be your last resort, your last stand. But what John is saying is that in advance of being under attack, you need to build up these fortifications. You need to establish a place of security. Why? Because these idols aren't just dangerous things over there that you need to stand clear of and keep yourself away from. They're things that are coming for you. They're coming for you. And they end up creeping into our lives And because we haven't taken steps to defend ourselves against them, they take the place of God. They dethrone God in our lives. So my question for you uh, today is, 
What are your idols? What has taken the place of God in your life? What are you trusting in, hoping in, depending on, which is a mere shadow or a copy or a fake of the fullness of God himself, which he longs to give to you? We're going to have a time uh, of ministry in the moment, in a moment, which is when we have an opportunity to pray for one another. And I want us to pray for those things that have got a hold on our hearts that won't let go. That we might be free of those things and allow God to give us the freedom and the fullness of eternal life that he has already promised us. So in that time, we can respond if you have any tugs on your heart just now to those things. Let's not leave it to accident or circumstance. Let's actually take steps now to guard against idols and dethrone those things now. If you're not able to identify any idols in your, in your life, praise God. Perhaps instead you need to ask, how can I live in ever closer communion with you, Lord, so that I might fortify myself against the influence of idols in my life? But before we go into ministry, I want to quickly name uh, I, I asked God um, in preparation to help me identify three specific idols that are perhaps of um, great significance in our culture and our time right now. And three things dropped immediately into my mind, and they might sound a bit strange, but I'm going to try and illuminate what I think they mean. The first idol is the idol of ideology or causes. By this, I mean a particular cause that you're passionate about. And it might be a good cause, it might be a great cause, but it's taken such a hold on you that you begin to see those who hold opposing ideologies as somewhat less human. We've had all sorts of opportunities over the recent years to form opposing political camps on things like uh, the independence in Indy Ref 1, maybe Indy Ref 2, uh, coming down the road, uh, Brexit. And even within Christianity, there are many, many uh, camps formed where it begins easy to see one particular view as so self-evidently right and somebody else's view so self-evidently wrong that we begin to treat each other as enemies when we're supposed to live as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And when we stand before the judgment seats of God, I don't believe he'll ask us why we failed to establish the perfect world order, but rather he will ask us why we failed to love our brothers and sisters and instead treated them as enemies. And even if they were enemies, which they probably, we shouldn't classify people as enemies, but even if they are, we're told to love our enemies. So beware the idol of ideology. Beware those causes that, that result in you seeing opposing arguments and those who hold them as lesser beings, lesser worth. A second idol is um, success. 
which is, these are interconnected, these idols, but what I mean by success is that we live in a culture that is, has such warped concepts of success and failure, of winning and losing. We begin to see it necessary to succeed at everything, win at everything, whatever the cost, to ourselves or to other people. Because our self-worth seems to depend completely on it. I know, as I'm sure many of you do, that you just feel of less worth when you do something badly. Maybe it's just a personality thing, but I went and played on the Himalayas, uh, the, 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 the putting thing the other day for the first time, and I just instantly expected myself to be brilliant at it and was, and was so frustrated at myself for not being brilliant at it. That's just a small example of the ridiculous standard to which I hold myself. And my self-worth seems to depend on doing everything well. And that's because success has become an idol. Do you know, friends, that God loves you just as much when you fail as when you succeed? Did you know that God isn't waiting for you to become cleverer or richer so that he can love you more? We should take the wins, we should celebrate the successes, but success becomes an idol when we lean so heavily upon it that we just can't live without it. And I think that when we stand before the judgment seat of God, he won't ask us if we succeeded in everything we did. He'll ask if we were faithful in everything that we did. Holding on to him in our successes and our failures alike. So beware the idol of success. And the third and last idol I identified or God, I believe God told me is shame. This seems a strange one, but let me explain. It's kind of like the mirror image of success. Uh, and I think it's a particular problem among some Christians, actually. Shame as an idol looks like this. I am so utterly wretched that I simply cannot bring my sin to God. My crimes against him are unforgivable. When I went on a, a retreat, I got chatting with my a spiritual director, and the spiritual director, we got talking about various uh, characters in the Gospels, and he, he ended up asking me, what was the difference between Peter and Judas in the way that they responded to their respective failures. Peter denied knowing Jesus in an attempt to essentially protect himself from, association, from, from knowing, known association with Jesus. And Judas, of course, led Roman soldiers to Jesus to arrest him. And as I was contemplating this and talking it through, it seemed as though Peter was able to find peace and reconciliation after his failure because he was able to see God's mercy as greater than his own failure. Judas, on the other hand, could see nothing but his own failure 
and that led him to have no hope whatsoever. His sin ate him up. It turned him in on himself. That is a place of great desperation and need where if we're not careful, sin, shame begins to just occupy permanent residence within us. And we can't see it as being within the capacity of God to forgive. We've made something in that case more powerful than God. We've given that thing the place of God in our lives. Therefore, shame has become an idol. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, I don't believe he'll ask us whether we were sufficiently ashamed of ourselves. But rather, he'll ask if, despite our shame, we will fall upon the mercy of Jesus into his open arms to take into ourselves his undiminished love and total forgiveness that was bought at a great cost. So beware the idol of shame and of success and of ideology. Why don't we stand and I'll pray. Holy Spirit, would you come now, speak to us, and shine a light on our heart of hearts. Show us where we have allowed anything to get in the door of our lives. Help us to see it, to name it, to renounce it, to repent, and to fall upon your mercy and your love. Come, Holy Spirit.